Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you. I'm Greg Paris. We're so thrilled that you are here and joining us for Easter Sunday at Union Chapel. So glad you're here and trust that you're well. We uh, are starting a new series today. You asked for it and you heard Pastor Cole talking about some of the subjects that we've been considering. Thank you for all the questions that you've been asking. Uh, frankly, some of them were quite profound. In fact, so profound that there's no way I'm going to tackle trying to answer them. It's above my pay grade, you know, that sort of thing. But next week, I'm very excited to address the question of refugees. What would Jesus do with the refugee problem? And we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about people who are displaced. And you may know that there are more displaced persons in the world right now, tens of millions of people, more than at any time in history. And so this is a very relevant topic, and I'm very excited to share with you some of the things I've been discovering And then the next two weeks, we're going to talk about suffering. This is an age-old question. Why is there so much suffering? Why does God allow so much suffering in the world? And then the the last week, we're going to talk about doubt. And we do live in a a period of time when it seems that it's more and more difficult to believe, to actually embrace a meaningful faith, and so many questions being asked. And so we're going to deal with our doubts, and I hope that that will be very helpful topic to you. So I hope you'll come, bring some friends and family with you, and we're looking forward and very excited about sharing these, uh, these services with you upcoming. Today we want to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? And let me just remind you that Jesus didn't come to the earth for himself. He didn't come here because he needed to somehow pad his resume or increase his status or make a bigger name for himself because he already had all that. Jesus came to the earth for one purpose, one mission, and that was for you and for me. He came to offer his life as a sufficient sacrifice, a satisfaction for the estrangement that our own rebellion toward God and sin toward God had created. And and so we look to Jesus today as the most selfless person who's ever lived, and we'll learn about the benefits of knowing him. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to look at John's Gospel today. This is one of the early morning resurrection uh, pieces from, from John's Gospel, chapter 20, and I'm going to read the first uh, 10 verses there. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and if not, we'll project these words on the screen for you. Our custom here at Union Chapel is to stand to hear God's Word. It's, a, it's an, an expression of honor for God's Word and its authority. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, the one Jesus loved, who is is he referring to? This is John. So this is the gospel of John. So John is writing about himself. He's the one whom Jesus loved. He's, He's the favorite. We're not sure why. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, note, Mary speculates about why the body is gone. She assumes that the body has been taken, been stolen. Now, Jesus told them that he was going to raise from the dead, but they still didn't expect it. And so even now, they're wondering who took the body. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, who's he referring to here? He's referring to himself. So now we know John is the favorite, and he's the fastest. He's the fastest runner. 
guess that's helpful to know. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, I'm sure way back behind him, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Now here's just a question. If you were there to steal the body, why would you unwrap the body? Why would you take the shroud away from the body? That's a little creepy, isn't it? A little odd. If you're just taking the body, why wouldn't you leave it wrapped? And so they find the linens. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Not only is he the favorite, he's the fastest, and now he's the first to believe. So we, we know John, he's special. He's very special. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, and then the disciples went back to where they were staying. And may God inspire and instruct us through his word today. Thank you so much. You may be seated. You have uh, on your outline there in your bulletin some thoughts that I'd like to offer to you today to consider as it relates to why Jesus died, why he had to come, what was the purpose of his mission, and what are the benefits to us who now believe in him. And if you have your bulletin there, the outline, the first point I want to make is that everything I've ever done is forgiven. Everything wrong I've ever done is forgiven. This is the great promise of the resurrection, that once and for all, Jesus will satisfy the penalty for our sin and offers this wonderful forgiveness freely, completely, instantly, and repeatedly. We are forgiven. Isn't that a great, great promise, a great truth? Thank God for that. And of course, even if there wasn't a heaven promised, although there is, heaven is a real place, real people are going to go there. Even if heaven wasn't promised, being forgiven is merit alone, isn't it? So that we could live with a clear conscience, freedom from all of our guilt and our regrets and our shame, completely forgiven of all those things. Acts chapter 10, verse 43 says, all who believe in Jesus will be forgiven of their sins through Jesus' name. Listen to Romans 3.22. We are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins, and we all can be saved in the same way no matter who we are or what we have done. Isn't that a, isn't that a great phrase? No matter who we are or what we have done. Can you feel that? Can you get it? It doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've done it with. It doesn't matter how long you've engaged it. It doesn't matter who you are or how dark and deep and desperate your life has become. No matter who you are or what you have done, you are forgiven and made right with God. What a great promise. What a wonderful benefit. Now, number two, it's on your outline. It's this. I learned God's purpose for my life. I learn God's purpose for my life. Now, this is a big thing. If it was just you and me in the room today, just the two of us, and I looked you in the eye and I said, tell me, can you describe your purpose? Why you are here? Do you know why you're alive? Why you're on the planet? What is your purpose in life? Could you tell me? What would you tell me? Before you start feeling too bad about that, let me just remind you that most people do not know their purpose in life. They don't know it. You end up Drifting through life when you don't know your purpose in life, you get bounced around, life controls you rather than you controlling your life. But there's only one way that you're going to learn your purpose 
in life. The only way that you could possibly know your purpose is to consult the one who made you, your creator. Makes perfect sense, right? The one who designed you is the one who has the best idea of how you should be functioning in a purposeful way in the world. I've discovered uh, in my life when I said yes to Jesus and surrendered my life to him when I was 16 years old, that this is a promise that God makes to us that, to give us purpose. And it's not that you know every step of the journey from then on or you know the whole blueprint, but you understand that you're on a new road. You're on the way. You're the way in the way that God has designed for your life. And so each step you take, you surrender to God and he orders our steps. This is the promise of the scripture, that God will order the steps of his righteous ones. The Bible says if you'll, if you'll trust in God and lean not on your own understanding, God will direct your paths. This is a great promise. You know, there's some things you, you know and some things you believe. You can believe that to be true. This is something that I know, having walked with God now for almost 50 years. God is faithful to help us understand why we're here, who we are, and why we are here. There are people who say, well, in order to find your purpose, you just look within, you know, Look within your own heart to find your way. Hmm, that's not a good idea because your heart will lie to you. And how in the world does it make any sense? You didn't make you, so how would you understand your purpose? You didn't design you. You're uniquely designed, you understand. The one who made you uniquely you is the one who understands best how you should live your life in a purposeful way. I love Colossians 1.16 it says everything, absolutely everything got started in Christ and finds its purpose in him. So I learned God's purpose for my life. It's a big thing. Now here's the third thing I want to mention, and it's this. I get God's strength for daily living. I get God's strength for living. Now listen, let me just challenge you. This is more than, this is more than just preacher talk now. This is, this is the strength that we need the virtue that we need in order to live honorably and nobly in this world. It is God-given strength. Over the years, I've listened to people talk about the things that they don't like about their lives. You know, in pastoral ministry, I hear lots of different stories, and I hear people complaining about worry or fear or guilt or boredom or bitterness. You know what I think is the number one issue, the number one challenge in our culture today in people's lives? It's weariness, weariness. And when I say that, when I say that, I can feel you going, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I am tired. I'm tired of being tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. In February this, in February this year, I actually preached a six-week series on the Sabbath. You know, the word Sabbath literally means stop and rest. And it was hugely popular. Folks really responded well to it. I, I encourage you to get online and go back to those archives and listen to those messages because it'll help you get on balance, to balance your life. The world is constantly demanding that we keep going at a high rate of speed. It just never stops. The world forces us into its mold. It squeezes us into these pressure points, and we hear ourselves just going and going. You know, if I don't maintain a certain standard of living, people will think that I'm not, not a valuable person. Or if I don't raise my kids a certain way, you know, there's this new standard of parenting today that just seems like a three-ring circus to me. 
You know, if my kid isn't involved in every activity possible, and so people just chase it, chase it, chase it, and just run, run, run at a high rate of speed. And most families, both, both persons are working, and, and it just, you know, you just meet yourself coming and going, and you, and you, you finally stop, and you say, well, how's your life? And you say, well, I'm tired. And so weariness envelops us. But the promise of God that is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ that he will give you the power you need to live your life well and on balance. And so you have to plug in in a meaningful relationship with Christ in order to understand this power. If you're unplugged, then it doesn't work. You know, a, a toaster that's unplugged is worthless. You agree? How about a blender? A blender unplugged is worthless. A, a vacuum cleaner. Can you imagine yourself doing this all day? Unplugged? It's worthless. It's no good. And of course, that's obvious. But your life cannot possibly be all God intended for it to be until you get plugged in to God's power. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 29. It says, God gives power to those who are tired and worn out and offers strength to the weak. In Ephesians 1.19, it says, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe. It is that same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Now, here's, here's what we're saying. This is what we're learning. That the same power that entered Jesus' body on the first resurrection morning is the same power that will quicken your body and give you power for living. I just want to submit to you that could be some power. That could be some virtue. That could be some energy. And it's a great promise. That same power that raised Christ from the dead will be available to us. Now, you may be in the room today and you may be a skeptic. You may not believe the gospel. You may not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And you hear me talking now and you just go, blah, blah, blah. This is preacher talk. It's Easter Sunday. This is what, you know, that guy gets paid to do and he's supposed to say these things. Let me just push back at you for a moment. I'm talking about power for living. And I want to submit to you that every single person in this room, regardless of your level of faith, is in need of power beyond ourselves. For example, there is the power to change. If you were being honest, if everyone in the room was being honest about their life, you would admit that there are things about you that you don't like. You don't like your personality, or you don't like your past, or you don't like the way you've handled life, or you don't you don't uh, like the fact that you've tried to change and you've put your willpower to play trying to change and it's always fallen short. Virtually everyone in this room can get in touch with the idea that if there isn't power outside of myself, I'm not going to have what I need to make the changes that I desire. And this is the promise of God, to give you the power to change. How about the power to start over? Don't raise your hand on this question, but I wonder how many people have needed a second chance in your life. A, you know, a, a, a do-over. An, another opportunity. All of us have, in one degree or another, needed second chances. Well, the power of God is present to give you a second chance. How about the power to keep going? You ever gotten to a place where you said, I can't take another step. I can't go another day. I can't go on like this in a, another moment. Not in this situation, not in this job, not in this relationship. And all of us have come to a place where we say, I just can't go on. This is it. I'm at the end of myself. Power to keep going. This is the promise of the gospel. When you place your confident trust in Christ. And then there, there's power to say no. 
Think about that. Everyone in this room understands the need for power to say no because the things that we say yes to from time to time, we know hurt us and mess us up and destroy us and cause us to dysfunction. You say, I need to say no to that, not yes to that. God has promised to give us the power to say no. Paul says it like this. It's Philippians 4.13. My wife Beth, her favorite verse of scripture, which says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Another translation says, I have the strength to face all conditions by the power that Christ gives me. All conditions. What are those conditions? Loneliness, pressure, stress, guilt and fear, boredom, bitterness, rejection, financial crisis, health crisis, relational crisis. And where does the power come from to deal with these things? It comes from God when you place your trust in him. So we have these things. All the sins I've ever committed are forgiven. I get my past forgiven. I get a purpose for living. I get a power for living. And then number four, it's on your outline, and this is kind of the cherry on top. This is the guarantee of eternal life. Guaranteed eternal life. Why did Jesus have to die so that we could benefit in all of these ways to live with him forever? When Jesus came back to life 2,700 years ago, it literally split history between B.C. and A.D. Think about that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important moment in all of human history. It's separated time. Every one of you have a birthday, and all of you calculate your birthday based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The month, the day, the year you were born is relative to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anytime you put a date on any kind of form, anytime you type it in any kind of form, you are recognizing the demarcation of time between B.C. and A.D. time based on this most important, nothing's more important than this in all of human history, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing's bigger, nothing more important. So the resurrection proves a few things. Let me just sub submit that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. You ever thought about that? Here's what Jesus did. He said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to allow my enemies to kill me. Allow my enemies to kill me, and then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, that's a pretty good test, right? There have been all kinds of people in history who have claimed to be the prophet or be God or, or be raised from the dead, be some kind of special entity. But this is the only guy, this Jesus, who said, here is going to be my test, self-imposed test. I'm going to let my enemies kill me. So everybody can see I'm dead, and then three days later, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. Well, that's a pretty good test, right? I think it proves that Jesus is who he said he is. And so when Jesus went around talking to people and telling people that he was God, that forced them into making a decision about Jesus, just like it does today. You may be in the room today, and you may think that Jesus is just a good guy. You know, he did good things. He was a good teacher. But listen, being a good teacher is not one of the options that we have for Jesus because he was claiming to be God. A good teacher would not say, I am God. So you have to conclude either he was lying, you know, a con man just trying to yank your chain, or he's not well, mentally ill, he's a lunatic. He actually thinks he's God. You know, there are people in the world today who think they're Napoleon. You can go to certain places and maybe, you know, God forbid you know someone or a family member who's 
who is disconnected from reality, their brain does not work. They believe themselves to be all kinds of entities. You know, hi, my name's Bob, I'm, a, I'm Napoleon. And they believe it. And you think, well, that's sad. Because he's crazy. He's not right. Or there are people alive today who think they're a fried egg. And you think, that's just, that's just really sad. Jesus actually came onto the scene of history and he said, look, I'm God. I'm God. So you can't label him a good teacher because he claimed to be God. Anybody who's rational and claims to be God, you either have to say he's a liar, he's trying to deceive me, or he's crazy, or the third option is he is actually who he said he is. He really is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He's who he said he is. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose I got up today and I said, hi, my name is Greg, and I'm a good teacher. You might respond to that by saying, well, yeah, okay, we'll give you that. You know, occasionally you'll say something that I learn from. Okay, you're a good teacher. And then what if I kick it up a notch? And I say, hi, my name is Greg, and I am a prophet of God. I even changed my voice. I am a prophet of God. And then you hear that and you go, okay, well, now you're pushing it. Not sure about that. Okay, maybe. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. We're not sure. Maybe. And then I really elevate the whole thing, and I come to you with as much conviction as I can muster, and you believe that I believe what I'm saying to be true. And I say to you, hi, my name is Greg, and I am God. You've been looking for God? You found me. Here I am. God Greg. Greg Almighty. Here I am. I'm God. Now, if you, if you actually believe that I was was all in with that whole notion, that would change our relationship, wouldn't it? Because now you're going to think about me differently. You're going to have to come to terms with that. Greg thinks he's God. Okay, what are my options? All right, he's either lying to us. He's a con man. That's what he's, that's it. He's lying to us. He wants, he needs something from us. So he's going to, that's why he's, he's lying to us. Or he's, Greg is nuts. He's lost his mind. He's crazy. Poor Greg, he needs help. Can we get him some help? We'll even help pay for his help. He, we have to put him away. He thinks he's God. Or I'm really God. And you have to, and you have to believe that. And the same is true with Jesus. You, you can't believe that he merely exists. You have to determine whether he is who he said he is. And I think the resurrection proves that he is who he said he is. Throughout history, lots of people have claimed to be God. But Jesus actually went through this amazing process to prove that he's God. You know, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to people for 40 days. So he didn't just get up and then, you know, drift away. He got up and he was appearing to people for 40 days. Think about this. Think about it. He appeared to groups of his disciples uh, other followers, there was one occasion when he's appearing at a party in front of 500 people. You know, it's pretty hard to fool 500 people. Oh, uh, you saw a ghost. Not all 500 of us. We saw Jesus. So he's walking around, walking and talking and partying for 40 days after the resurrection. This is one of the, reason, this is one of the reasons that people began to follow Jesus so, so aggressively, so sincerely, 
You know, within a few years, there's a, over 100,000 people just in Jerusalem who were followers of Jesus. And the reason the movement began to grow so quickly early on is because virtually everyone who believed in Jesus had either seen him alive or had been influenced by the testimony who saw him alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-documented events in history. It'll stand up in any court of law and has many, many times throughout the centuries. People who poo-poo the resurrection are people who just aren't willing to use critical thinking against the facts presented. Jesus rose from the dead, and it proved Jesus was who he said he was. And another thing it proves is that, proves that he can keep his promises. And would you agree with me that if a guy who said, look, I'm going to let my enemies kill me, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead, I promise, and then he does that, may have the capacity to actually fulfill all the other promises he makes. I mean, if he can do that one, he may be able to pull off, I'll be with you, I'll care for you. He can do that one too. So it, it proves that he can keep his promises. And then another thing is that it proves that there is life after death. The Bible's clear about this. The Bible says that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then look, we're all fools. And we're all still stuck in our sins. We're all doomed and damned. When, when we're dead, we're dead. And that's it. You know, we might as well close up shop. Why bother with this Easter celebration and events like this? Why, why go to the bother? Let's just close down because there's nothing to it. It has no meaning. There's no truth in it. We'll just go back to Florida for spring break. Just all, you know, check out. Let's all go back to Florida. I'm buying, you know, corn dogs for everybody. <laughs> if there is no resurrection. Let me show you what Jesus said in John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said, I'm the one who raises the dead and gives them life again. I am the one, he said, who raises from the dead and gives life. Buddha didn't say that. Mohammed didn't say that. Karl Marx didn't say that. Jesus said that. And because of that, he said, anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, shall live again. He's given eternal life for believing in me and shall never perish. We all know John 3.16. I'll put that on the screen for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah. Everything you've ever done wrong is forgiven. You have purpose for living. You get a home in heaven. You get power for living here on the earth. Let me ask you, where else are you going to get that? Where else are you going to get those benefits? Where else are you going to get this kind of response? And the answer is nowhere. Nowhere. If you don't get it from Jesus, you don't get it. So what does this mean, to believe? To believe in Jesus? James 2.19 says, do you think it's enough just to believe that there's one God? Even the demons believe that and tremble. So there must be something more serious, more significant to the way we should believe in Jesus. The word believe from the New Testament is a Greek word that means to trust or to cling to or rely on or adhere to or commit to. It's, it sounds like there's a depth. There's a maturity to it, believing in Christ. You know, there's different levels of knowledge of people. For example, we all know the Kardashians. We know K. West and the Kardashians. In fact, we know more about them than we want to know. 
But we all, we all have a knowledge of them. But it's, it's surface level. I mean, most of us haven't met any of these people, but we believe they exist. They're out there. They're living their lives, and we kind of eavesdrop in from time to time, so we know a little bit of, about them. That happens. Um, I know about Tom Cruise. I believe Tom Cruise exists. I've never invited Tom Cruise into my heart. I've never given my life to Tom Cruise. But I believe he exists. I know a little bit about him, but not much. Same thing is true with our neighbors. You know, next door, we know a little bit about them. Level of knowledge, you know, maybe we know where they're from or we know what they do. We know a little bit of their story. We know they exist, but we we don't really know all that much about them. But when you've been married for a while, now now that takes it to another depth. You, You know a lot more about your spouse, especially when you've lived with them for a long, long time. I know my wife. My wife, Beth, she's still a mystery. Uh, I'm not a mystery to her because she's deep and I'm shallow. <laughs> but she's still a mystery. She knows everything about me. I, I know very little about her, but I do know I love her. I do. And when I say I believe in Beth, it means more than I know she exists. Far more than I know about my wife exists, uh, it means I trust her. I rely on her. I'm committed to her. I, uh, I know her intimately in a way that I know no other person in the world. In four months, we will have been married 40 years. That's the kind of... Yeah. I assume that's for her. <laughs> Those of you who know me are applauding for her. She's a saint. But that's the kind of knowledge and intimacy I'm talking about. When I say I believe in my wife, it's more than merely I believe that she exists. It means I trust her. I'm committed to her. I rely on her. I love her with all of my heart. I do. And that's the kind of meaning that believe has in the scripture. It means to trust in. It means to cling to. It means to rely on. It means to adhere to. On the flip side of your outline, you'll see I've used an acrostic, the word trust, and Maybe you're in a place right now in your life that, that you're ready to take a step in your relationship with Christ. And by the way, people have been taking steps toward Jesus in all of our services this weekend. And I know for sure there are people here who would say, you know, maybe it's my time. I've been putting this off or I finally come to this conclusion or finally the light came on and I realize I don't have what I need to manage my life. I need the Creator's help. And the Bible promises all of these benefits to place my trust in Christ. And maybe that's the step you need to take today. Maybe if we use the word trust as an acrostic, you'll understand better what these steps toward Jesus mean. For example, turn everything over to Jesus. That's a step. You're good, the bad, the ugly, the secret, the past, the present, the future. Just turn your life over to him. I love Romans 10, 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth... Jesus is my Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. It's a great promise. Turn everything over to him. Maybe the R would stand for relax in his love. Relax in his love. Now, this is really important, friends, because God loves you, and there are lots of people who are trying to earn God's love, but even if you try really hard, you can't earn or deserve God's love. The Bible says that we've been saved by grace. Grace is the unmerited, unearned, 
undeserved favor of God. This is a gift of God, not the result of our effort, not the result of trying to do good and be good. There's nothing that you could do to make God love you anymore, anything so bad to make him love you any less. God just loves you, and so relax in his love. Rest in his love. Be confident in his love. The you may stand for use my life to serve God by serving others. Serve God by serving others. That's a way to believe. That's a way to receive. Take the next step. How about the S standing for suffer for doing what's right? Now, you don't hear this kind of preaching much in America anymore, talking about suffering for Jesus' sake. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't cater to the whole idea of suffering for our faith. That's not something that's current, contemporary in the American experience, but you probably know more Christians are killed for their faith than any other cause around the world every year. More Christians are killed every year just for simply believing in Jesus than any other reason. And of course, we've all heard about the ISIS crisis and, and Christians are being beheaded and burned at the stake and crucified, men and women and children, butchered. Why? Because they believe in Jesus. That's it. It's not the first time in history that's happened. You know, just a week ago in Egypt, two Coptic Christian churches were bombed by terrorists. Forty people lost their lives. Just as sure as the world, Christians gathering by the hundreds of millions to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ this weekend, they'll be killed in the assembly of the celebration. Why? Because they are followers of Jesus. Jesus was really straightforward about this. He said, look, if, you're, if you want to follow after me, chase after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow me. He said, the, the, the way that people follow me most authentically is by being selfless and by losing their lives for my sake. Maybe you've known Jesus for a while. Maybe this is a step that you're willing to take today. Lord, if necessary, I'm willing to suffer for your sake. Wow. And then the last letter is another T, and maybe that stands for trust, what he says. Turn everything over to Jesus, relax in his love, use your life to serve others, suffer for doing what's right, and trust what he says. In John 1:12, it says, to all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become the children of God. Yeah. So we recognize Jesus as the Son of God, raised from the dead, and extending an invitation for us not only to believe that he's alive, but to receive his gift of life and forgiveness into our own lives. And again, here's my invitation, the question to you. Are you at a place where you're ready to take that step, to say yes to this wonderful gift of forgiveness and the power for life, assurance of eternity? If you are, you can take this step today and you've come to the right place because we can help you. Can I encourage you right now just to pray about this? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? No one's looking around. Let me just ask this question. Again, this is a private moment for you, and, and no one is going to put you on the spot in any way. But let me just ask, if you're in a place right now, a position in your life, you realize, hey, this is my day. This is, this is my opportunity. This is my time. Somehow, I don't know how this is happening, but I sense that God 
is asking me to take a step of faith toward him today and to receive Jesus into my life so that I can enjoy his forgiveness, his peace and power in my life. If that's true for you, would you just raise your hand where you are? Say, Pastor Greg, here I am. Good, I see your hand there, honey. Anyone else? Just raise it up so I can see it. I see you, young man. God bless you. So good. Anyone else? Good for you, young man. Appreciate it. Another hand in the back. I see you. Thank you. Now we're going to pray this prayer together out loud, okay? No one prays alone here at Union Chapel. We'll pray it together. So I'll say the prayer. You pray it right after me out loud. Are you ready, everyone? Dear gracious God, I'm sorry for all of my wrongs, all of my failures, all of my faults. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life as a satisfaction for my sin. Lord Jesus, forgive me my sins. Come into my life. I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to believe in you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would empower my life, that this day forward, I can follow Jesus with all of my heart. I have decided to follow Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. All right, now let's celebrate with those who prayed that prayer. Come on. Good, 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 good. Yeah, it's a good thing. Amen. Stand up with us now.